This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for all that you have given us, but above all for your word, because it is through your word that we come to know you, and we come to know who we are, and we come to know how we can have a relationship with you, and how we can come to think as you would have us to think. And above all, we come to understand all of the manifold dimensions of uh, our salvation and our Savior. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Colossians, continue to think about what it means to uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly within us, to inhabit us, to fulfill, to completely fill our thinking, and the results of that in terms of uh, worship through singing and praise and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We pray that we might uh, be able to think objectively, clearly about these things as we seek to apply that principle in a way that honors and glorifies you above all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. This week and next week I will be finishing up this sort of mini-series within our study of Colossians on this topic of... Uh, music. How do we sing? What do we sing? And what are the standards for what we sing? Asking the question, trying to answer it a little more fully this morning, the question of by what standard? When we talk about anything within the realm of the arts, whether it is writing, whether it is drama, whether it's dance, whether it is uh, drama, uh, and there are elements of all of those in the, in the Scripture. Often we think that what makes these things good or excellent has something to do with its appeal to the audience and not some intrinsic beauty that exists within that artistic expression, that true art isn't excellent because it's popular. True art isn't excellent because it resonates in the human soul. It may do both. But good art, excellent art, is excellent because it conforms to an external absolute of intrinsic beauty, which is within the essence of God. Last week I, and the week before, I talked about this concept of beauty. I started off talking about, is this really true, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? 
Last time I talked more about that very concept and how we come to understand that beauty is in ultimately within the Godhead, Godhead itself. It is essential to the deity of our creator. And that has many significant implications. Today I want to look a little more at this idea of the standard because one question that constantly has come up over the years as I have taught this is that we understand that, okay, that there is an external standard. But what are the elements of that standard? How, to, how do we sit down and look at a piece of music and determine whether or not this qualifies as something that is truly in beauty reflecting the intrinsic beauty of God? Or is it just something that is popular or attractive to the audience? That's a, these are important but difficult questions. Um, I have one young pastor who constantly say, we need these fence posts drilled down so that we can clearly understand this. Unfortunately, in the realm of the arts, it's not as easy to identify those markers, those boundaries, as it is, for example, when we look at the words, when we look at the lyrics. When you look at the lyrics and you read through a set of lyrics and something stands out because it contradicts Scripture, it's very easy to know where that where that demarcation is, where the boundary line is. And you say, oh, well, that's wrong. We shouldn't sing that because it's bad theology, poor theology, something of that, uh, of that nature. But when it comes to music, this is something that seems fuzzy to people. And, and over the years, I've been thinking about this for approximately 40 or 45 years as uh, I grew up during the era when this transition was taking place, the rise of contemporary choruses, the rise of the contemporary worship music and all of that, and trying to just define this. And and for many people who are just coming to uh, to this issue and they haven't had the opportunity to give it a lot of thought, uh, we all bring to this a lot of baggage. We have... Uh, when it comes to music, I find there's very few other things in the life of the church that people hold to so passionately in terms of their own opinions, their own likes and dislikes, and their own personal taste. And you can talk about just about anything, but you start messing with somebody's music, and they're not very happy because they're immediately drawing implications to what they listen to on the radio. And that's a different discussion. There are some things that apply, but but it is not what we're focusing on here. What we're focusing on here is the music that is sung congregationally and maybe with a choir within a local church to worship God with the understanding that has been lost in the current generation that there is a distinction and ought to be a distinction between the music that is sung by the body of Christ within the congregational meeting of the church that is a distinctive reflection of the culture of Christianity. And if that is our understanding, then that means that the music that we sing here is not going to be similar to the music that you hear on the radio or listen to on your Uh, iPod or iPad or iPhone or whatever else it may be 
or the music that you play even uh, if you're taking lessons or you're in band or something like that because they play more pop, pop music now, uh, things of that nature. But there's a distinction, and for generations of the church, from roughly the first century until the 19, late 1960s, there was this understanding among Christians of all categories, denominations, that secular music was secular music. There was folk music. wasn't what we call pop music today. That's basically a development of the 20th century. There was folk music. There was uh, ethnic music. But then there was music that was sacred music. And that was an important distinction because the music, just like everything else that we do within the context of the local church, should reflect a biblical framework of thinking and not the thinking of the world outside. So I've introduced a couple of concepts in this in, in this uh, opening introduction that are important. I've used the term culture. So we need to understand what exactly does does culture mean and how does culture relate to our values in terms of understanding that which is uh, to be valued, that which is uh, beautiful, and how is that impacted. And that is particularly significant because when we think about this whole concept of the arts as a general category, and music specifically, when we use evaluative terms like that's good music, that's bad music, that's beautiful music, we seem to be appealing to some sort of universal standard by the language that we use, although what is often meant by that today is not that is beautiful music because it, it relates to an external standard an objective standard of beauty. It's beautiful music because it stirs my emotions. I like it and it makes me feel good. It's bad music because I don't like it. It's not my taste. It's not my music. And it doesn't make my foot tap or my heart beat faster or my emotions uh, swirl. And so we use purely subjective standards. And, And that's brought into the church too because for many, many years, uh, we hear people come to church and they'll, you'll sing, and not so much here, but I've heard this in other churches, and they'll say, oh, that music was so inspirational. Is that the reason we sing? Is so that we will be inspired. Is that biblical? Oh, I really, that music was so great today, I really felt like I worshiped. Remember the first time I ever did a series on this at, I was pastoring in Irving, Texas at the time, back in the mid 80s. And I had several people in the congregation who had come out of charismatic churches that, in fact, one guy in the church who had come out of Calvary Chapel, which is really the grandfather of the whole contemporary music scene, and he had grown up there. And it was so ingrained in him. It was it was really funny because for, for probably several months after that, he'd walk out of church and say, oh, I really felt like, oh, and then he'd stop himself right in the mid, mid-sentence when he was getting ready to say, I felt like I worshipped this morning, and he was just catching himself. See, that's the corrective value uh, of the word. And it was, uh, it was fun to watch people and, and rewarding to watch people grow in their understanding of these things because uh, often music is something that we think of as deeply personal, and that's why there are such worship wars going on, splitting congregations and in some cases splitting families and splitting ministries because of these, these things. So we need to have humility and we need to have 
a good understanding of what the Word says and of history and philosophy and theology. That's what makes it hard for a lot of pastors is they're not trained theologically, they're not trained philosophically, and they're not trained musically to be able to address these things. And so their only real criteria is what they like and what they see as 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 popular in that it brings more people to my church. And if I've got more people in my church, God must be blessing me, so that must mean God approves of my music. That's their rationale. If you're thinking, you know there are a lot of uh, logical fallacies in that. So we're asking the question, by what standard do we evaluate the arts? By what standard do we evaluate music? Colossians 3.16 tells us, as I've pointed out each week, that there is a purpose, a biblically defined purpose to why we sing. It's not just because it's traditional. It's not just because we, we like to do it. It's not just because uh, it's a sort of a warm-up session to make sure everybody finally gets here in time for the teaching of the Word, which is the, the real show. It is clearly mandated and expected of the people of God in corporate worship to sing together in praise to God. Our verse reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which means to take up its complete residence in your soul, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And that's the result. These are result participles in the Greek. And so the result of letting the word of Christ fill your life by the, by the filling of the Holy Spirit is that we will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and through that we teach and admonish one another. Now, that's not the only reason that we sing. The Scripture gives other reasons for why we sing, and um, I'll get into those, but I want to give a little review so we can understand what it is that we've learned in this this series. And this series is somewhat different from the one I taught several years ago in uh, Revelation uh, chapters 4 and 5. Uh, those were somewhere around lessons 100, I mean 98, 99, 100, 101, 102 in that series. And I approached it, same conclusions, but from a different angle. What we've seen here, first of all, is that in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18, Hymn singing is the first in a list of results that will come from the person who is letting his life be filled by the Word of God under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The next result that comes has to do with being thankful and has to do with uh, doing everything to glorify God. And then the next result is it changes your family life, changes your marriage, changes your family life. And we will get into that area following the uh, Labor Day weekend next weekend. I thought I would postpone that until everybody was back from summer vacations and school breaks and everything, and then we would probably spend about anywhere from four to eight weeks going through the passages on uh, family life and the impact of the Word of God on marriage and family. So the first result, though, is a result relating to singing. Why? Because we're joyful over what we've learned in the Word. We've learned about God's grace, and this has given us great joy. Second purpose that we, or the first primary purpose we see, therefore, for hymn singing is that we are to, it is designed for us to teach one another, to admonish or correct one another. There are other purposes listed in Scripture, we are, scripture states that we sing to express our joy. 
for God's work in our lives. Joy because he has defended us in Psalm 511 and 637. Uh, joy over his grace to us in Psalm 13.6 and Psalm 59.16. Joy because we remember his mighty works in our life, uh, Psalm 30, verse 4. There are many other verses that relate to those, but those are just some to begin with. We sing to declare his name among his people, and I, I italicize that. There's also, as I read in Psalm 145 this morning, there are also verses that talk about uh, singing to the nations, but it's, it's part of testimony. It's not the idea of, of witnessing or evangelism. It is, it is specifically the testimony of Israel in those passages. But we declare his name among his people. In the Old Testament, the singing of these psalms that we have in the, in the Old Testament, which is the hymn book of, of, of the temple, these were sung in the temple. There's no place that you can find in Scripture where the music that we sing is designed to attract people to the church. Music is not to be an evangelistic tool. But you will go out today into the wild and wacky world of evangelicalism and if you say that, you will be looked at as if you just grew a third eye and a tail. You're nuts. That's why we do it at our church, is so unbelievers will be feel comfortable. But that ha- that's not biblical at all. Uh, the purpose for singing is not for evangelism, and it's not to attract people to the church, and it's not to make the unbeliever who operates on a pagan, false system of thinking feel comfortable. It is for believers to express our joy to God and to teach and admonish one another. So the fourth point is what I've just stated. It's not about evangelism or making non-Christians comfortable or attracting people to the local church. Fifth, it's not about making, uh, it's not about how it makes us feel. It's not about, the criterion isn't, oh, I was inspired this morning. It's not about any of those things. It is about describing and declaring, as we heard in the psalm I read this morning, about describing and declaring who God is and what he has done. So hymns, both music and words, must be evaluated according to some standard. Do we accomplish what the Scripture says we should be accomplishing when we sing? Are we teaching and admonishing one another? Are we declaring what God has done to us, for us and to us? And are we expressing thanks to God for all of his, all of his mighty works? Now, when we come to any question like this, where we talk about evaluating things, we run into a couple of important areas that we need to define. When we say anything about something in terms of evaluating it, whether it's good or bad or weak or poor or excellent or shoddy or trivial or banal, we immediately are bringing into the discussion some, some idea of a standard, some idea of personal standards, personal values, and personal taste. Well, let me ask you to think a little bit about where you get your personal taste and your personal opinions. Why do you like the music that you like? When you get in the car, you go home and and listen to music. Why do you choose to listen to the music that you listen to? 
Is the music that you listen to the music of your generation? Is the music that you listen to part of the culture, the pop culture that you grew up with or that you have continued to develop with along the line? Or is the music that you listen to the, uh, the art that you like, the um, uh, drama, the movies, the films, uh, do you like... What shaped your taste, your personal taste in those things? And I'll suggest that that our taste was developed by our culture. If you had been uh, reared in Brazil or in Japan or in Siberia or in Africa, your tastes would be different. They would be shaped by those cultures, and so we have to understand what the role of culture is in this, and I think in doing that we have to understand what culture means. And for, we have two different meanings for culture. The first is the popular meaning. The popular meaning for culture is what you probably thought of initially, and that is it's uh, the quality in a person or society that arises from a concern or from an interest in what is regarded as excellent in the arts in the letters and manners, scholarly pursuits, etc. You think about museums, you think about symphony, you think about opera, you think about uh, the, the museum of, uh, of visual arts, things of those. That's what people think of when they think of culture. And that's part of culture. In fact, I would say it's more on the result end of culture rather than the uh, cause end of culture. Because the term culture really relates to what I have under the second meaning, and that culture describes the beliefs and behaviors that characterize a group of people, whether it's a small group such as a family or a team to a large group such as an ethnic group or national entity. The Houston Texans are a small group. They have a culture. The Dallas Cowboys have a different culture. New York Yankees have a different culture. Every team has a culture. If you work for Exxon, you have a business culture at Exxon. If you work for BP, you have a different culture there. If you work at Costco, you don't have the same culture there that you have at Sam's. They're different companies. are made up of different people who have slightly different uh, mission statements for their, for, their, uh, for their companies and their businesses, and they have a slightly different value. There many may be the same, but there are differences. And so every one of these things is a culture. You have a culture in your family. I have a culture in my family. And those shape our values and ideas, our, our priorities, all of these things. So in the second paragraph, I state the, belief, these belief, the beliefs that we have influence the values, what we think is right, good, better, best, bad, worse, the values, priorities, actions of a group of people. And in this sense that we're talking about here, what the Bible speaks, it really relates to what the Bible speaks of as worldliness. Worldliness is how people outside the church believe, think, and act. That's what, it's a worldly culture. There's the Greco-Roman culture. There's a Persian culture. There was the culture of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Each of these groups had, had a culture. They had values. They had values that were very different. They liked certain things, approved certain things, and disapproved other things, and they weren't the same. But it, these values, these beliefs are not shaped by the Bible. 
So when we want to have a biblical culture, which is what should characterize a local church, then we have to go to the Bible to determine what those beliefs should be, how those beliefs in turn shape our values, what we think of as right or wrong or better or worse, shape our priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our our energy, and it will affect the things that we approve and the things that we disapprove. It will affect what we allow to dominate uh, our our thinking and to influence our thinking and, and what we want. When God created the heavens and the earth and he created Adam and Eve and he created them in his image and likeness. They were without sin. They were created perfect. He placed them in the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden had a righteous culture. There was no sin there. Everything was righteous. But when Adam sinned and he introduced a new value system, what they did, everything changed. The culture changed. And the whole issue in sanctification and salvation is that God working first generally through the human race and then after the call of Abraham through the Jewish people, God's calling, and then now through the church, God is calling out a counterculture, a biblical culture in the process of re-educating yourself from the culture of the world to a biblical culture is called theologically sanctification, learning how to think as God thinks, to value what God values, and to do things the way God would have us to do them. But there are things in the scriptures that are not, there are things in life that are not specifically addressed in scripture. So we have to develop uh, uh, frameworks from the scripture that we can then apply into these other areas. This is what we have to do with music, because you can't go to chapter and verse anywhere in the Bible and say, ah, God likes John Philip Sousa marches, and he doesn't like uh, the Grateful Dead. (laughs) doesn't say that anywhere. You have to make these decisions on the basis of what's revealed to us, which means you have to do one of those horrible things. It's not a four-letter word unless you are a product of modern public education, and that's the word think. People don't like to think. It's hard to think. And what's really hard is when we have to think about our thinking and we know that what it's going to do is tell us that maybe the way we like to do things and what pleases us ought not please us and we really ought to spend our time and our energies doing something else. And that gets convicting and then we want to react to it because God's saying, no, you can't do it your way, you need to do it my way and so we get mad at God. Well, when it comes to music and especially the arts, people somehow get this idea that, that well, that because ultimately to determine whether something is aesthetically beautiful or not, that's a personal decision. That's why I spend so much time talking about is beauty in the eye of the beholder. If, if ultimately beauty is in an int- one who is intrinsically beautiful with an external objective standard, and what we think of as beauty is merely our variations in personal taste affected to a large degree by our culture, then then all of a sudden we realize that even in these areas of the arts, there are absolutes that should impact, impact our thinking. It's not neutral. 
And in the discussions and debates that, that I read and that I've had with people over the years, there are many who say, well, music is neutral. You can just use it however you want to. Music is neutral. Writing is neutral. Uh, theater is neutral. But all of these dramatic, dramatic things, all of these areas of the arts vary from culture to culture. A Chinese culture could never produce the fit, great film works that the United States produced in the 1930s. It never would have happened. An Islamic culture would never produce that. Why? Because it's not consistent with their values. It'll never happen. If you think like an Islam, based, uh, like a Muslim based on the Quran, you're never going to produce anything that comes close to Gone with the Wind. It will never happen. You travel very much in other cultures, and as much as they're influenced by the United States in terms of film and television, you can truly tell a vast difference by looking, just looking at what goes on. When I'm in Kiev and I watch Ukrainian television, you just, I don't understand a word that's going on, but I can certainly see the difference in just the visual presentation. Because that is part of their, their culture. You, you Also, uh, in Israel, or you go to other countries, you see how they present that. That comes out of a belief system. Tracking the connection between the belief system and the production of the arts is not always easy to do. But it's done by many people who are thinkers and philosophers. That's why you have to be trained in philosophy and theology and arts and all these other things to work this out. But no matter what culture we're thinking about, whether it's Japanese culture, Chinese culture, Brazilian culture, uh, Ugandan culture, Zulu culture, Anglo-American culture, whatever it is, that culture is all part of God's creation. And therefore, anything that's part of God's creation is under God's authority. There's nothing that's neutral that's somehow distinct. So... We look at this particular chart. We have on the one side, God is the creator. God created everything, music included, arts included, writing included. The best literature in the world is where? It's right in your lap, hopefully. It's the Bible. It's great literature. People who are unbelievers and pagans understand and write about the Bible is great literature. People who are not Christians and don't have an ax to understand that the Greek of the New Testament is some of the finest literature that's ever been produced because it originates in God. There is That in, in it of itself indicates a, a standard. So on the one side, we have God as the creator, and on the other side, we have the finite universe, which God created. And everything in the finite universe is created by God, and therefore God has something to say about it. Uh, what matter, energy, light, vegetation, animals, man, and defining man as to who he is, his purpose, his social life, including marriage, family, law, politics, his ethics or value systems, his aesthetics, what he values is beautiful or not, and that includes all art, music, and literature, all is part of God's creation. So God has something to say about these things. In God, we have the absolute of truth and beauty. That is intrinsic to God. He is the ultimate reference point for everything, not just spiritual things, 
but everything because he's the one who designed and created everything. Music existed in the mind of God eternally before he ever created an angel or a human being. Art existed in the mind of God before he created everything. Drama existed in the mind of God before he created everything. God is the ultimate reference point. And we have to understand, so, so as I've said so many times, if you're going to say anything about anything, you better start with the triune sovereign creator God of the Bible or you won't get it right. You may get some things right, you may get a lot of things right, but you won't have a correct view of whatever it is you're talking about if you don't start with God who had everything in his thinking and is the originator and creator of everything from eternity past. Which leads us to the statement that some people think is a little radical. God either speaks to everything, including music and art, or he speaks to nothing he creates. He either speaks to everything or he doesn't really speak to anything. He either is the creator of everything or he's the creator of nothing. So the conclusion from that, when we apply it to bibliology of the study of the Scripture, is that the Word of God, which is designed to teach us how to think like God thinks so that we can glorify God, means that the Word of God must reveal to us a framework for establishing standards of excellence. And in the previous two lessons, I talked about beauty because beauty is a word that has been used in the history of human thought to express that standard of excellence. Other words that I talked about last week are also used as synonyms with that in the Scripture, words related to the glory of God, His magnificence, His majestic, splendid, beautiful, and excellent. Uh, Several different words are used in Scripture to describe this. Uh, Tov, meaning something is pleasant or beautiful. The word that is most often used as our concept of beauty, that which is attractive and pleasing and pleasant, is the word uh, yafa. Uh, also, you have the word tzvi uh, and hadar, and they have other senses or meanings as well. So this, all of that I summarized uh, from last time, talking about the, the fact that the Bible uses these terms to express the beauty and the excellence of God, indicating that, that the ultimate reference point for all these, the standard for beauty and excellence is God. And he possesses intrinsic beauty, which then becomes our, our standard. I pointed out then that what I mean by intrinsic beauty is the beauty is inherent in something independent of the response made. Whether you like it or not doesn't matter. God is beautiful. You don't believe in him? God is a standard of beauty. It's irregardless of the response in us. And I quoted Mortimer J. Adler, and uh, incidentally, he's uh, uh, Chris's uncle, was Chris's uncle. He's, he's dead now. One of the foremost contemporary philosophers and realists in America, one of the editors of the great books of the Western world, an encyclopedia Britannica, uh, wrote numerous works, one of which every high school kid should read, called How to Read a Book. And he said, we call the, an object beautiful because it has certain properties that make it admirable. It has those properties. Whether or not it's having them results in its being enjoyable by you or me. In other words, I can look at something and say, I don't like it. But it, somebody else looks at it and says, that's beautiful. I'm, I've expressed an uninformed opinion They've expressed an informed, uh, an informed, intelligent statement. 
Another way you could look at this as an illustration is, for example, at the, at the uh, recent Olympics. I watched the, di- uh, the platform diving events one day. I saw the finals. And it was just the, the, the Chinese girl that was diving was, is just unbelievable. Her points were, were off the charts. She, she had a score of something like 340 points going into her last dive, and the silver medalist had somewhere around 250 points. The, the, the announcer said that she could stumble and fall off the platform as long as she hit the water, she would still get a gold medal. But to my untrained, uneducated eye, I really couldn't tell a lot of difference between her, the, the gold medalist and the silver medalist. And there were only 20 points or 30 points separating the silver medalist from the, from the bronze medalist. And see, that's how a lot of us are about music. We, we look at many different types of, types of music, and we say, well, I don't understand why that person says this isn't very good and that's very good. They both sound great to me. That's the difference between an untrained ear and an uneducated uh, person who's uneducated in music and someone who has a trained ear and is educated in music, just like those judges at, at, at the Olympics. They see things that you and I don't see unless we've taken a lot of time to be educated in the sport and to be able to see what we see. Now, so, some verses. Bible church, we ought to say some things about what the Bible says about this. Second Chronicles 20.21 20, says... When he had consulted with the people, talking about Jehoshaphat, this is a a renewal time in the uh, worship in in Israel, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord. So the king is appointing a choir. He's not just going eeny, meeny, miny, moe. He's not saying, who wants to volunteer? He is choosing the best in Israel because only God gets only the best. Now, the best in some groups is better than the best in other groups, but we need to have the best and look, do, always push towards excellence. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. Now, there's a parallelism there. Singing to the Lord is the same as praising. So here, praise means singing, uh, praising the beauty of holiness. They're, they're, they're glorifying and praising the essence of God. And, and uh, so they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for why? It's not just praise the Lord. Why? What has God done? His mercy has delivered them. Job 40, verses 9 and 10, in, uh, this is a section in Job where after Job has gone through all his suffering and his three friends keep trying to say, well, if you suffer, it's all your fault. You must have done something because if you were really righteous, God wouldn't have let you go through this. And so finally, and Job has resisted that. He has affirmed his uprightness all the way through. But then he does turn to God and he says he just wants an answer for why he suffered, like, like we do often. Why, Lord, why have you let unjust things happen in my life? And then God begins a whole series of rhetorical questions all designed to uh, make Job feel. Not, he's not belittling him, but he wants Job to feel like he's about the size of, uh, of a tiny ant in comparison to God and that Job just really can't, if God told him everything, Job still would, would just be dumbstruck and he wouldn't have a clue what God had told him because he, we, in our finite minds we just can't grasp the totality that's in God's plan. So God just kept hitting him with all of these, these, these questions. He said, do you have an arm like God? In other words, are you as powerful as God? 
Or can you thunder with a voice like his? I mean, you think you've done a lot of things, Job, but can you make the kind of noise that I can make? No. And he says, then if you can, then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor or beauty uh, and array yourself with glory and beauty. God views himself as the ultimate standard of majesty and power and splendor and glory and beauty. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. And here is a different word for beauty. This isn't the one word I pointed out earlier. Uh, this is the word noam, which is taken to be beauty in some, but it's beauty in the sense of the ultimate, of ultimate graciousness. God is the picture of ultimate grace, and for that he is said to be beautiful. Psalm 104, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and beauty. So again and again and again, the scriptures reaffirm that God is the standard for excellence, virtue, and and beauty. He's the ultimate reference point for all ethical absolutes as well as aesthetic absolutes. Remember, aesthetics is the study of beauty and what make and defining what makes something beautiful. Now, at the very beginning of creation, after as God worked each of the six days, at the end of each day, what did God say? He said, "Everything is tov." And then at the end. Of the seven days, he says, everything is tov ma'od. Tov means good. Now, it's not a moral evaluation at this point. It is, it is an aesthetic evaluation. Why do we know it's not moral? We know it's not moral because he's talking about the earth and the stars and the plants and the beasts of the field. They can't be moral or immoral. He's not making a moral judgment. He's making an evaluative judgment based on the fact that, that, that this is exactly what he intended and everything is excellent according to a standard. It is beautiful. All creation was beautiful, but something happens, and this is so important in understanding this whole concept when we talk about values and, and beauty, is that initially all creation was tov, it was beautiful, but it was corrupted by sin. We get to Genesis 3, Adam sins, and it, it corrupts all of creation. It's no longer can be said to be absolute beauty. It was once, but now it's under the corruption of sin. How do we know that? Romans 8, 20 to 22. Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility. It wasn't like this initially. You go out and you work in your garden and you stick your finger with a rose thorn and you say, there's something wrong with this. You're right. That's a result of sin. The original roses didn't have sin, didn't have thorns. They were absolutely beautiful. Now they're corrupted. They have thorns, thistles. You have to weed your garden. It wasn't that way initially. God didn't design it to be that way. That's subject to futility. It was originally perfect. Romans 8.21, uh, God had subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. That's where the cre- creation is now. It's in the bondage of corruption, and it will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And right now, verse 22 says, the whole creation groans and labors. So that means that living on this side of the fall with a sin nature that has an attraction to that which is corrupt, 
and and cultures, human cultures that act independently of God and produce corrupt results. They produce corrupt literature. They produce corrupt drama. They produce corrupt music. They produce corrupt everything. And that influences us, and we grow up with a corrupted taste that's consistent with our corrupted culture, whether you're Chinese, Japanese, Brazilian, Anglo-American, African, whatever. We've all been corrupted by sin and the results of a corrupt culture. Now, I want to try to help us understand how we pick a value here. So I, I designed this little chart. Look at the upper line. I'm drawing that as an ethical spectrum. And I have a vertical line in the middle because we know if you're on the left side of that line, you're in sin, and on the right side, you're in righteousness, and it's really clear when you cross the line because it's a very thin line. And you know when something is right and you know when something is wrong. Now, on the bottom line, I have an aesthetic spectrum. On one side, you have that which is ugly. The other side, you have that which is beautiful. When do you cross specifically? How do you identify when you cross from beauty to ugly? That's really the question we're asking. When is it, real, it, it, when is it good literature and when does it become bad literature? When is it good music? When does it become bad, bad music? See, on the one side, we have an ethical term of sin and an ethical term of righteousness. On the side where we talk about sin, we also include other values such as something's wrong, it's sin, it's bad. But then when it comes to areas related to ethics and design, it can be chaotic, unorganized, uh, it could be evil, it can be profane or common. On the other side, we have ethical absolute terms such as righteous and good, but we also have other values such as it's ordered and it is kadosh. I'm, trans, I'm contrasting kadosh being set apart to God as the Old Testament does with that which is secular or profane. Those are at opposite ends. But how do we tell when we cross the line? Well, often the, it's like this. There's no clear certain point when you say, oh, this is, we've now moved from beautiful music and good music to bad music. It's more of a spectrum. It's uncertain. You know, and the question that too often is being asked today is how close can we get to that line without it being bad music? You know, if you're a parent, you've always sort of seen this probably in some kids. One exception here I know. we got one mom here who actually tried to bribe her daughter with $100 when she was in high school to just make a B. That's the exception in the congregation because she always made, always made A's. But for most people, it's like how close can I get to the line and just and, and still pass without getting an A plus? We ask the question, how can I? What, what's the minimum requirement to say I did it? I just I don't want to fail, but I'll be happy with the D minus, D plus, C minus. And, and so when it comes to music in the church, we often say, well, you know, that's not bad. But what's the standard supposed to be? The standard is a standard of excellence. God wants us to constantly be pushing towards A+, not saying, well, what's the minimum I can do? Now, we may not all be musically talented, we may not, and we do not all sing well, but we can do the best that we can do, and we can push ourselves as individuals to do what's best. Now, I don't mean that, and sometimes this comes into the discussion, I don't mean that we're trying to, uh, and congregations should not necessarily attempt to sing like a professional 
singer, like a professional choir, like a professional musician, like a Bach or Handel or Mozart, but we should sing congregational songs that are designed for congregations to sing, and we should sing songs that we can sing and sing them to the best, uh, best of our ability. When we settle for less than the best, what I read in the literature by knowledgeable musicians is that we are trivializing the, the music. And does that honor God to sing trivial music? Now, I'm not sure I can really tell the difference between trivial music and non-trivial music. But I know people who can. Another term that is used is banal. Banal means something that is tediously commonplace or unoriginal. How does that honor God to write music that really isn't very original and it isn't that great, but it's popular and it's commonplace? And often that which is popular on the radio is rather trivial. But I like country western music. I like all kinds of music, but I like country western music. But I haven't liked country western music in 20 years because it's, it's, it's formula. And it's always the same. Everybody sings the same thing because that's what sells. And it's trivial now. It's, common, it's banal. It's ridiculous. Why, why listen to that? James Spiegel, who wrote a very excellent article in a theological journal on Christian aesthetics, states, the aesthetic vice, this aesthetic vice, that which is banal or trivial, deadens the sensibilities of the layperson who is not aesthetically keen enough to recognize it, but is nonetheless harmfully affected by it. Now, what he's saying there is you may not be very sophisticated in your understanding of music, but if all you ever sing is trivial stuff, then that's what's going to shape your taste. But if you sing great stuff, eventually that's going to have uh, the, the impact of bringing up your level of music appreciation and value. Not only that, but if we sing just trivial banal, I may think it's great, but if I have musically trained people in the church that think it's poor, that's the last line, it will annoy the aesthetically aware person to distraction or put her to sleep. So if we don't sing great music, then the people who know great music are irritated, bored, whatever, but you, you create a problem for them. Madeline Lingle, who wrote the book uh, Somewhere in Time, or, yeah, a Wrinkle in Time, excuse me, I got that wrong, a Wrinkle in Time, was, was one, she's a Christian, I think she was Roman Catholic, much in the tradition of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and many other uh, literati of the 20th century, made an interesting statement. She said, if it's bad art, it's bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. In other words, no matter how good your intentions are, if it's not good art, it's not good religion. And so much of what Christianity produces today is trivial, it's banal. The wor- I'm not even talking about the words. The music just isn't that good. But most Christians are so poorly trained in music that they don't say anything or know any different. And that is a sad commentary. Because as we go to our next verse in Colossians, we do have a standard. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word, that would relate to the lyrics. This is the next verse coming right out of his statement about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, Whatever you do. Now that applies to whatever you do, but immediately in the context, he's talking about singing. 
Whatever you do in word, that's the lyrics, or indeed, that could relate to the music. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says something similar. It says, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we look at what we sing and how we sing it, we need to think we're doing this to glorify God. We want the best we can produce, not the best somebody else can produce, but the best I can. That was the hardest things I've had to, I, I had to drill into myself when I was in seminary and drill into other seminary students. When you go to school, you do the best you can do, not, and don't beat yourself up because you're not doing the best that somebody else can do because they have a whole different set of circumstances that God gave you. You make sure you do the best you can do. And if the very best you can do is a B or a B plus because you have to work 60 hours a week and they don't, then that's the best you can do. That glorifies God. But if you don't have to work and you're making a B plus because you're spending most of your time playing video games or solitaire on the computer, then you're not glorifying God. The best you can do is the best you can do, the best this congregation can, can do with the talent and the spiritual gifts that God gave us. We need to always push towards excellence and not ask, what is the minimum? Have we done it well enough to glorify God? We don't look for enough to get by. We have to pursue excellence. There is a standard. Next week we'll come back, wrap up this study, and then shift gears into the family. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we come together to reflect upon your word, to see how it applies, to think about these uh, mandates in Scripture and the teaching and how that relates to us as Christians living in a, our culture with the trends, with the uh, various uh, pressures that go on around us with the popular uh, trends and uh, popular things that happen in churches and to reflect upon the fact that, that we're not going to be shaped by trends. We're not going to be shaped by that which is popular. We're going to get into the Word. We're going to do what the Word says. We're going to apply the Word to the best of our ability, seeking excellence in everything that we can to the degree that we can, to the degree that you have enabled us. Father, our ultimate example is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our ultimate example is your grace. You did everything necessary to provide for our salvation. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's not saved, anyone here that's never trusted in Christ as Savior, anyone here who's not sure if they're, uh, where they'll go when they die, this is the opportunity to trust in Christ as Savior. He paid the penalty for every sin so that by trusting in him and him alone, you can have eternal life. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. He who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.